0: I think for everybody, in order to be successful, there are five steps that you go through, essentially. That everybody has their goals. They, what is their goal and the passion? So you have goals. And then what happens is you're going after your goals, and you encounter your problems. Okay. So encountering problems. And then the big difference between people is how they approach those problems. People who get bummed out by the problems um, don't learn from them. Who learns from them? So those who uh, recognize that problems are exciting, that they get into those you know, problems or mistakes, mistakes are learning experience, the pain that comes from that mistake. Every time you have pain, it's an indication that something's at odds. And so the people who have the pain Are the people then who will go into that realize that if they solve that pain, solve that problem, understand what that is representative of, not just the one problem, but that problem is a certain type of problem that will happen over and over and over again in your life. And if you can solve, how do I deal with that kind of problem? and uh, so diagnose the third thing that everybody needs to do is if they have problems on the way to their goals that they diagnose those problems and they get to the root cause the real root cause the real root cause is often is typically what people are like can you go to what you're like can you go to your mistakes can you go to your weaknesses right can you go to other people's mistakes and weaknesses some people because of an ego barrier can't do that. And so, if they don't recognize their own mistakes, their own weaknesses, uh, or others' mistakes and weaknesses, what the root cause may, being what they're like because of ego barriers, if they can't go there, they're going to repeat those mistakes. They're going to have them over and over again. So, it's the process essentially of saying at that stage, what am I like? Everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. The weaknesses are the other side of the strengths. So, let's say if you're uh, you know, a right brain creative person, you may not be reliable. Because just the way you think necessitates you to think a certain way. That means you can't think in another way. That means you're going to keep bumping into that thing that's standing in your way. But unless you can embrace, I'm not reliable, you <laughs> right, and deal with it, you won't get around it. It's still going to continue to be a barrier, right? So the diagnosis to the root cause is, is, is important. So then, Um, If you diagnose it, then you have to design what are you going to do about it that works. So um, let's say you are uh, very creative but not reliable. Okay, you have to find a means of, first of all, embracing that and then saying, um, if I'm not reliable, what do I do? Do I work with a reliable person? Do I learn reliability? Do I have some compensating mechanism? Because I can't let that lack of reliability stand in the way of my goal. As long as I keep doing that, I'm going to keep running into problems. So you have to design what you do about the problems. And then when you're designing what you do about the problems, uh, then you have to follow it through. So you have to um, follow through or or do the thing you designed. Um, and, and, and the doing the thing you designed um, requires self-discipline and so on. So people have to do those things in order to be successful, right? They have to know what their goals are. They, they, have, they will encounter their problems. They have to diagnose those problems down to the root cause, the real root cause. They have to design ways to get around them. And then they have to have the self-discipline to follow that. And it's a continuous iterative process. So that that's what we keep doing, right? So you're going in that direction, I would say that all of the shapers are doing that. They're doing that. They're doing that well, right? So they don't mind the problems. They don't mind that. That's their adventures. Wonderful book um, is um, Einstein's Mistakes, right? How he and you hear his struggles, right? He wouldn't have been able to be cutting edge. He wouldn't have been able to be inventive if you didn't go through that. So when you're looking at the personality characteristics, the personality characteristics uh, lend themselves to doing that five-step process well. It's the mixture of the elements that matter, right? If you have a tremendous tenacity, but you're you're studying, you're learning, you're trying to memorize and remember everything that you're being taught and you're really trying hard, you could have great tenacity. You need the making sense of something. You need to embrace reality you need these other dimensions, right? So the, I think the things that uh, we started to talk about just before, the, you know, the things that um, these people uh, have a need for, is, is first they need to most fundamentally make sense of things, which is a very different kind of learning process. It's a very internalized learning process. It's not a memory-based process. So none of these people, unlike the population as a whole, none of these people have a desire to follow instructions. For most people, you, you you go to school, they tell you what class to go to, um, They uh, what classes to take. This goes all the way through university. They, they do this, do this, do this, and then you go into the class and they say, learn this, and this is the information. And it's largely a memory-based, instructional-based process. This is not what these people do, right? This is not uh, so the path what they what they have in it is a strong strong desire to understand and make sense of reality how does reality work okay and then so they're all uh, very independent thinking um, and, and and rebellious okay they don't mind you know saying screw you I am this is what makes sense and I've got to go down that path right they're comfortable with ambiguity they love ambiguity some people don't like the ambiguity. Most people, they say, oh, I'm nervous about ambiguity. They love to go within the space of what's ambiguous, because that's where the discovery is, right? They love making mistakes, the process. They understand that making mistakes, you know, loosen up. It's like you know, going to ski or something. You can't learn how to ski unless you're falling. So they don't mind the falling. They're not embarrassed about making mistakes. They're not worried also about the approval of others, right? So many people are constantly saying, oh, well, uh, well the, risk, the whole different definition of risk. What's risky? They're not worried about what people think of them, right? Is that risk uh, or, or failure? They, the the ter- term of failure is a totally different thing. The, the failure is a part of the learning process, right? What's the risk of failure? What, you'll be embarrassed or risk of failure? How do you distinguish failure from learning? uh in in your whole life you know failure implies that it stopped that the game stops right if it's part of a you're failing and then you learn then that learning is part of the moving forward right so that is what the process is like fail learn move forward and constantly do that because you're cutting edge you're going where people haven't been before in inventiveness that's exciting to those people. So that's a different kind of approach to life, right? It's a different way of being. People are so attached to being right, and yet the tragedy is it's, it could be so easily to find out how you're wrong. If you just said to yourself, "I don't, um, I'm not sure that I'm right, and let me go find people who have alternative point of views, and let me have quality conversations, not to pay attention even to their conclusions, but to the thought process. So thoughtful discussion, worrying about being wrong, but not to the sense of being paralyzed or uh, moving forward, but in the sense of trying to create discovery, uh, uh, to have um, an exchange to go after the person who has the most different point of view, Who is the most thoughtful, and then have a conversation to see their point of view, whether a person could be both open-minded and assertive at the same time, that that creates a discovery process, it creates a fabulous learning, and that process itself reduces the probability of being wrong and produces a great deal of learning. People are so hung up on being right starting their discussion and being deriving some sort of satisfaction if at the end of the discussion they were where they began the discussion. So that doesn't make any sense because there's not going to be any learning. So ego plays an important role in that, right? That's that, oh, the people who feel like they're, I'm good, I've got it, won't learn. If you've got it, you won't learn, right? So so you have to get rid of this ego barrier I've got it thing. The, then the issue of weaknesses like every human being has weaknesses. And and it as I say it's the opposite side of thinking. It's the in other words if you are one if you have a brain that works one way and you're doing certain things that allow you to do things that way that you're excelling it means that your brain is working in a manner that has its pluses that'll cause its minuses so the creative person who's not reliable or the reliable person who's not creative but if they don't embrace that they're going to continue to encounter that ego barrier is the worst thing and if we were raised differently just imagine in the schools that all along that people will always say everybody makes mistakes everybody has weaknesses The key is really to understand what your mistakes and weaknesses are so that you can learn from them, right? I think punishment is a a terrible concept. Punishment means that you made a mistake and you're being punished. I think instead of punishment, every time somebody makes a mistake, you you should say the only thing that you need to do um, to get out of your punishment is first think, what kind of mistake was that? So if I'm in this situation that's like that again, um, how would I do, deal with it differently not to make that mistake? So that learning should come from the mistake, not punishment, because you're teaching people not to make mistakes, where, where's where the learning comes from, not the appreciation that if you keep doing this over and over again, you're going to keep encountering the same outcomes, In my particular case, um, I started trading markets um, when I was a kid, when I was 12. Um, And the markets, um, uh, there are certain things about uh, being in the markets in terms of decision-making that are unique, that encourage this kind of thinking. Um, So first, um, because all of the consensus is already baked into the price in order to be correct in the markets, in order to make money in the markets, you have to see something that the con- that the consensus doesn't see. So you have to have an independent point of view. Very different than most other professions. Most other professions, um, you can build on existing knowledge. You you don't have to have a point of view. If if you can, if you're a doctor and somebody breaks a leg or whatever, you can repair that leg. It's not zero sum in the sense that you have to be smarter than the next person or different from the consensus. Now, in order to be different from the consensus, um, it's it, there's a high risk you're going to be wrong. So if you Form, for me, if I form that point of view and I'm wrong, the probability of being wrong, I'm trying to reduce. And and so by having other people stress test my thinking, it's very practical, right? So I th- say, I work really hard to have this independent point of view, and then I bring that independent point of view out there and I say, shoot at it. How am I going to be wrong? And let's have that quality back and forth. and And so that was just a practical approach find people who have alternative points of view and have quality conversations back and forth. Not to let them think for me, not for me to follow their point of view, but for me to understand the different perspectives, right? Very, very practical because it increases my probability of being right and it reduces my probability of being wrong. And what I discovered in that process is that I was learning so much. So just imagine what a path it is, fantastic path, to think, let me go at, after the person who has got the opposite point of view, who's really smart. And let me have quality conversations, quality disagreement. So in my case, it was, it was very much motivated by that. And then I have clear measures of whether I'm right or wrong. So there's a clear accountability. In other words, I could do whatever I want. want. It's my responsibility. If I made a purchase or a sale, I can measure on a day-to-day basis how good that process is. So I get clear feedback. Just the goal is, you know, don't be too wrong. Be more right than wrong. And so in that process, it's not I can take personal accountability. I mean, if I don't learn personal accountability, if I don't learn, then I'm going to pay a terrible price. So that process itself lent itself to this kind of very open-minded decision. The, also, the, the making mistakes and, and, and the loving the mistakes – And then, um, because I believe of that, we have a culture that's of radical transparency, right? So every meeting is, is taped and made available for everybody in the company to look at. And all we have are conversations of what makes sense. Like, everybody has the right to make sense of things. Okay, now, in that environment, I get to see how differently people think. I realize how radically different people think. And... So that was a curiosity to me. I really, because it's masked, you have no idea what's going on behind other people's eyeballs. You know, they're in their heads. They're, they all look a lot alike, but their brains work so differently. So that led me to brain science. In other words, so I was very, very interested in understanding literally how the brain works and the physiology of the brain. And that's and, and and we have different physiologies, so um, f- what we think is um, is just our interpretations. Uh, are things like uh, love? Love is physiological. you know there's a there's a uh, chemical in your brain? I f- forgot the name it begins with an O. That is where love comes from. So this physiology, our brains are structured differently, and then when you start to realize that. that the brain is very much like the body. um, In other words, there are parts of that, uh, your your body, you can exercise and change certain parts of that. You have a certain body, and maybe you can get more muscular to a certain degree, and maybe you can't. And then there are parts of your brain, parts of your body, that you can't change. You can't change your bone structure, right? That's just the reality of of the brains, and that is what people are like. So the recognition of that, the embracing of that reality is great, yet we don't talk about that, and that's a tragedy. Reality is reality. Okay, which is more? going to produce more discomfort? De- denying reality? I-, I call the you know, harsh truths. There are harsh truths, things you wish were not the case, okay, but they're truths. Do you want to know about them or do you not want to know about them? It's practical to know about them. Right. If you want to make success, it's practical to know about all those harsh realities. Right. Learn about the harsh and then deal with the harsh realities. The person who doesn't want to go there is not going to know the harsh realities, and they're not going to make progress. The person who loves to know all what reality is, whatever it is, is going to know how to deal with reality in the best possible way. Right. So what's the fear? Well, you're learning. You, you can reject, right? I mean, in other words, forget their opinion. The opinion doesn't matter, right? You will bring these every, all information together and then form your own opinion. But let me see that perspective. Uh, what is it brings in from knowledgeable people, from thoughtful people, those things, and then you can assess that. Does that make sense? And, and, and also test yours. In other words, you ask them the question, But gee, it doesn't seem that way. So have that dialogue. They should do it open-mindedly. If you can say, can we really have an open-minded dialogue, so that you can consider what I'm saying and I can consider what you're saying, so what we're in in a path. We're in a path to trying to find out what's true. That's that's or or even the 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 presumptions, the cause-effect relationships, right? Because everything works like a machine everything has everything every outcome has causes so when you think of it as what are let's state what our machine is how does the world work how does reality work and have a conversation how does reality work and if we can agree it works this way then you can say okay now let's put in the circumstances and that will mean that these things will happen if, that's the cause-effect relationship. If you can work through conversations, and you say, actually, reality works that way. So that's what the conversation can provide. I think it had an effect on me in terms of always liking improvisation. I always respected that ability, you know, to... Well, and but also, um, uh, he was out late at nights, and... So he, um, you know, uh, then slept later in the days, and so it affected how our relationship was, right? So, um, anyway, so watching him play jazz and and how we had that communication, uh, I think, played some effect. But, you know, for me, I, I was also an only child. And I think that maybe an only child played a role. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. You know, I can't psychoanalyze myself. But maybe, you know, the being there alone and having time to think played a role. And then also, so I would go out and play with my friends. I love relationships. For me, meaningful work and meaningful relationships are what it's all about. That's my own, that's where I'm coming from. Um, in other words, the passion for the work, and I, and I love, you know, that shaping or that learning how reality works. And I like to do that with a group of people. And then, I, and, and then my relationships are uh, very, very important. My family, my, my friends, all of those. So meaningful work and meaningful relationships are very important to me. I don't know. It's very difficult for me to psychoanalyze myself where that all came from. I caddied for um, Richard Nixon, I caddied for uh, the Duke of Windsor, I caddied for very interesting people at that golf course, and at the time also, there was Wall Street uh, crowd, and this was uh, in the 60s, and at, at the time, the United States was on top of the world, stocks kept going up, and there was... Everybody talked about the stock market. So it looks precocious, more precocious than it was. It was just what people were talking about. And I sh- certainly was interested in having those conversations, and I was interested in that experience. So, yes, um, I bought stocks, or I bought a stock, Northeast Airlines. And it was the first stock I bought. Um, the, and my whole criteria were um, it was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than five dollars a share, and I figured if I less than five dollars a share, I can buy more shares. I mean, dumb, right? But it turned out that that uh, company was about to be acquired. Was about to go broke. Somebody acquired it, and it uh, tripled or went up a lot, and I made money. And then, as a result of that, I got interested. And it was the thing to talk about. So I could talk about people, with Wall Street people, when we were walking down the course about what stocks were good and bad and that interaction. And because I was speaking to them about the stock market and they were really nice people, we had those quality conversations. And then I began the process. I hated hated school. I really hated school. I I hated school. Generally, right? Because it was this instruction following thing. Now, I I bet you it's probably also because I wasn't good at it. I mean, I suspect I wasn't good at it. You know, maybe to some extent uh, it was that, uh, yes, I wanted to pursue the understanding. I always liked the understanding. But I think it was, I think I was just built that way, right? So uh, some people, um, it sticks, And some people, like I've got a a great conceptual memory and a terrible rote memory. So if I have a story, I could tell you year by year kind of what happened um, within a story, within a context. Uh, But if I was to go into, you know, like a memory-based learning, it's terrible. I I have a terrible rote memory. My, My situation was I did terribly in high school. Um, I hated high school. I just wouldn't study. I would remember that, you know, my mother would send me to my room and say, You have to study. And I wouldn't study. I, I would refu- I'd do anything. I would be alone in the room. There would be, I'd find something to think about or do. And I wouldn't study. And I did terrible in, in high school. And I barely got into uh, a college that, um, C.W. Post College, which people, um, you know, it was just a, Um, it was a great college for me at the time and it was only then that I could begin to pick my courses so then I began to pick things that were interesting to me Um, and then it was exciting I loved it right and then and you had the free time like college you you know other school most of the time you know, you go in a certain time, the bell rings, you go to the next class, it's packed in. In in, in college, there was freedom. I always loved freedom. I remember when I got my car or whatever it would be, anything that brought me freedom, I loved. And so college allowed me freedom, the freedom to choose the subjects largely that I was interested in, the freedom of time. And so that, and so I did very well in college. And... And then I went to Harvard Business School. In the summer between, um, well, uh, between college and uh, going to Harvard Business School, I clerked on the floor of the Stock Exchange, which was in 1971, when there was the monetary system breakdown, and uh, which was an unbelievable experience. And, and it was, well, I, I was wrong many times in the markets up to that, but this was one of those really telling times. So you're, imagine you're um, – I, I watched it bef- uh, follow developments day by day up until the breakdown. And what I was seeing is that the world financial system, money as we knew it, dollars, were not being accepted. We had large debts around the world, and these dollars were not being accepted. And um, a big crisis. Um, And it came to head on August fifteenth, 1971, when I was clerking on the floor of the exchange. And President Nixon, on Sunday night, gets in front of the television and announces uh, the floating of the dollar. In other words, we're going off the gold standard. And at that time, uh, money had no value except as um, a claim against gold, because money was like checks in your checkbook. Right? It had no value, no intrinsic value. So now there was going to be the severing of the relationship. It's like now you can keep the checks, but you can't have the money that's in the bank. And so that, I figured, wow, what a shock. And I walked on to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where I'm clerking. And um, I come there, and the stock market went up the most it ever went up in a long time, in many years. Um, And that was the first time that happened. And I said I I wasn't prepared for the fact that this was a currency devaluation. People at the time, none of us, really understood the relationships because it never happened in our lifetimes before. So I started to do research. I always wanted to understand how it made sense, and I realized – that there were currency devaluations that happened many times in history. So, for example, in 1933, in March of 1933, in the Great Depression, the same thing happened for the same reasons. There was too much debt, and they had to print money. And when you print money, you have this kind of effect. And these experiences then, all through my uh, development, I found that there were many things that had never happened in my lifetime before or the lifetime of the people that I was operating with, the marketplace. The people in the market, mostly, uh, were very, very much um, responsive to their experiences, particularly their more recent experiences. So it was a pattern that I would see um, of surprise. We would be surprised because we were stuck in our presumption that our recent experiences were going to continue, what I learned is uh, what I learned is to be surprised. I, know, I learned by the surprises, and then when I when I was surprised, it's only because I didn't understand the cause effect relationship. Everything happens because there's this co- there are causes to make it happen. Everything, right? okay, now, when I looked at each one of those and said, that thing, did it ever happen before? And I went back in history, and I saw these things happening before for the same cause-effect relationships. And then I realized that everything, everything that happens is just another one of those, right? The same thing happens it may be, um, I don't know, if you're skiing and you make a turn, you're, that's called skiing and make a turn, and there is one of those, and they repeat, okay? So then when, how does reality work? What's the cause-effect relationship? So that if you're encountering one of those, a learning experience, um, I don't know, anything, a, a birth, a marriage, a an economic downturn, Um if you encounter any of those, they have all happened before. A deleveraging. So that's why um, we anticipated the deleveraging. Before, uh, there, before the uh, 2008 downturn in the economy, uh, We it's a very good example of what we're talking about. Um, uh, it, there's a machine. Everything works like a machine, meaning there's cause-effect relationships. Um, so in order to understand the machine and understand it through time, you have to ex- see how those cause-effect relationships works, particularly big events. Deleveragings have happened throughout history. You can go back thousands of years, hundreds of years. They always have happened because there's a certain nature to um, a debt cycle and how that works. When when debt rises faster than income, uh, you get to spend more. So l- l- I'll explain it in, in, in brief. Let's Let's imagine you're earning $100,000 a year and you have no debt. Then I can go out and borrow. Because I have no debt, I can go to the bank and I can borrow. And let's say they lend me $10,000 a year. So now I have $110,000 a year that I could spend. When I spend that $110,000, somebody else earns $110,000. So that causes their earnings to go up. As their earnings go up, they also can go to the bank. And so you build a cycle in which debt rises faster than income. Most importantly, that debt rises faster than the ability to service income. So that is a self-reinforcing upward cycle. It causes asset prices to rise, because if incomes are rising, companies are doing better, so their earnings do better. And so people um, with debt can buy goods, services, or financial assets. And those things cause them to go up. So there's a debt expansion. But obviously, debt can't rise faster than income forever. Usually, when we had um, a downturn, you'd lower interest rates because lowering interest rates would have stimulative effects on the economy. First, when you lower interest rates, it has the effect of um, making it easier to service your debt. Lower interest rates make it easier to service the debt. Also, it makes items that are bought on credit cheaper. Your monthly payments go down. If you buy a car or a house, your monthly payments go down if interest rates are lower. So it makes it cheaper, meaning you could afford more. So it stimulates the economy. And it also has the effect of raising assets prices because assets, um, if you have an income stream, it could be renting a property. You're comparing it with the going interest rate. And if the interest rate goes down, the value of the asset goes up. So it has a wealth effect. So as the economy works when there were lower interest rates, it would have the effect of stimulating an economy. And that stimulated economy really stimulated debt growth and therefore purchasing on debt. And it raises. So the economy always has gone through these cycles in which uh, interest rates go up. When they're trying to slow the economy, interest rates go down when they're um, trying to stimulate the economy. Um, However, when interest rates get close to zero, it doesn't work. So you have a lot of debt. Debt is rising faster than income. Can't go on forever. Can't lower interest rates. They hit zero. And the world changes. So that's the basic cause-effect dynamic. So in 2007, 2006, 2007, it was very clear we were in a bubble. But like all of these uh, situations, people at the time very much get carried away with what's happening at the time. Like 2005, five, six, everybody says the stock market goes up, it's a great investment, uh, because it went up. They don't realize it's more expensive. Going up may make it more expensive, but no, they look back and they say, it's a great investment, or houses, or I can go borrow money and and buy houses and do this. But they don't think about the paying back and how that works. This is human nature. This has happened through hundreds and thousands of years. And so they get to the point where interest rates can't go down, there's not a rectifying of the problem, and you begin a deleveraging. And then the process begins to work in reverse. A deleveraging means no longer can you raise income faster, excuse me, no longer can you raise your debt faster than your income. So if you can't, you have to slow your debt, you have to slow your spending. So as you slow your spending, you're slowing somebody else's income. And, and when I say you're, you're, it's the purchase of goods, services, and financial assets and as you slow the purchases of goods services and financial assets the economy goes down and the assets go down and as the assets go down and the incomes go down there's more of a need to cut your spending and so it begins to build um a self-reinforcing negative cycle there's not enough money in the system there's not enough money in the system because uh, again um just, just think of it, there's spending, and spending could be paid for either by money or credit. So if you go into a store and you're buying something, let's say I'm buying a suit, I can pay for it either by credit or I can pay by money. If I pay by credit, it's a promise to deliver money. If I pay by money, that transaction's complete. But since I can pay by credit, I can stimulate the demand, I can have a strong economy, but I owe money. And so the owing of the money means that uh, when when I can no longer produce credit and I have to go get money, I need more money in the system. And when you have a zero interest rate, then the central bank is stuck because this deleveraging will continue to feed on itself. It will continue. um, I don't spend You don't earn, it goes down. Can't service my debts because I don't have enough money to service my debts. Banks get in trouble because the person who they lent the money to doesn't pay back. What is a bank? A bank is a very simple thing. People gather, they put money in a bank. That person goes and lends it, that bank goes and lends it to some other people, and they then hope to get paid back at a higher interest rate. That's what it is. And so when those people can't pay back because they don't have – because that credit cycle starts to work in reverse and they can't pay back, then the banks get in trouble. They lose money. And when they lose money, then they're bad banks. And the whole system works. So you see that um, at the same time as there's a contraction in credit, there is a stock market falling because you need to sell assets. And because of the contraction in credit and people are spending less, earnings of companies go down, so the companies are worth less. And because of then the, the debt problems, the banks don't do well, so we have a banking crisis. So you see that that deleveraging happens w- and, uh, in, in the ways that we're used to happening. Uh, the debt, Private sector debt doesn't increase. Uh, spending is less. Uh, Banks get in trouble, markets go down, and so on, and there's not enough money. The central bank lowers interest rates, interest rates hit zero, they're stuck. So that's a deleveraging, and that's a a depression part of a deleveraging. Take the 30s, take Japan's deleveraging. These are iconic deleveraging and are deleveraging. At first, um, austerity is the path because you realize, oh, debt is a problem. And what we all have to do is uh, stop um, getting into more debt. That becomes obvious. We can't continue to do that. So we go through the austerity. But as we go through that austerity, there's a feedback loop because that lack of spending, that lacking of debt, causes somebody else's income to go down. Okay, so then there's there's a problem because of the debts. So we go to we encounter a lot of debt defaults, and we think about uh, restructuring debts. And those debt defaults means okay, how do we re-enter an agreement in which we can get past that, that you can pay what you can afford, and so there's a, a, a debt restructuring, a lot of debt restructurings, but the debt restructurings also don't help because well. They help to some extent, but they, they they also bring with them problems because one man's debts are another man's assets. So if I lower your debt, let's say I'm we do restructuring, you can pay half your mortgage. You come in, we'll readjust your mortgage, and you can pay half. Uh, then I have to write down that mortgage, and so my wealth goes down. And as my wealth goes down, I can borrow less and I can spend less. So it feeds on itself. So The problem is that there's too much debt relative to income. So you can reduce the debt by having austerity and cutting your debt, and that's good. And that's deflationary, and it's negative for growth because austerity means less spending. And you can restructure. um, So that is deflationary, and it's negative for growth. And uh, so that produces a lot of... Pain at the same time, so um, like in the in the thirties, nineteen twenty nine stock market crash, and you go through that, and it keeps feeding on itself, and it's not enough, it's not good enough because it causes that self reinforcing process, and then eventually the central banks print money. Uh, So in March nineteen thirty three, which was the bottom of the Great Depression, uh, President Roosevelt severs the link with gold. And, and prints money, because money, a debt, is a promise to deliver money. So if I can slip a little money into the system, it, it eases that pressure. Um, the printing of money, people think, is inflationary, and in and of itself, it is inflationary. But if it's happening at the same time as the other deflationary factors are happening so that there is still um, austerity, a certain amount, a certain amount of um, restructuring or working out debts, and the amount of printing so that they balance, all three of those approaches have the effect of lowering debt relative to income. So you can lower debt relative to income without having uh, a, you know a terrible situation, it's still this takes a long time, they call it the lost decade. Um, These countries go through lost decades. It's usually more than a decade, maybe 15 years, but it's an adjustment process, if done well, in which there's uh, the right mix between austerity, not raising debt relative to income, um, and uh, restructuring, getting the debt payments in order, and putting enough money into the system, so you're seeing uh, Europe go through that. It's classic, and all countries, and people, and companies, in one way or another, you know, through history, this has happened. The, the The main lesson to learn, but it's not human nature to, is not to have debt rise faster than income for an extended period of time, because that won't. That's a bubble. That won't last. But, but, because we're so responsive to what we've experienced we go through these cycles right the cycle is uh, let's say uh, my parents generation um, they were through two decades of depression and war so they have depression and war and they come out of that with the realization that they don't need luxuries that they were just if they uh, have they want to save to make sure the downside doesn't happen. And of course, at that point, uh, essentially, they're oversaving. saving uh, uh, And that's because there's no debt. You've wiped out the debt. The cycle is beginning to move up again. Then there is the positive reinforcement of the cycle. Times become better. And you get used to the time becoming better. So you go through that, that cycle, the 50s and the 60s. In the 70s, each one of those becomes better and you become that more distant from the negative experience and more um, confident and more confident, meaning that what's saving for? Saving is because you th- worry that the future will be worse th- than the past. So you save in, in order to protect that. So saving um, becomes less important. As your living standards, you said, I can afford. I can enjoy life more. And then borrowing. Who is doing well then? It's the person who's borrowing to buy financial investments. or bu- They buy their house. The house goes up. And you look at your neighbors and you say, that, well, that's the thing to do. And then we go through that cycle. And through that cycle, debt rises faster than income. And as debt rises faster than income... And reaches its limits then we go through the cycle again right and so because it's a, these come along once in a lifetime and so we didn't experience them so it's again it's another one of those right i don't know what a hedge fund is i i, I really don't know it, it uh, when i say that um um it's like a, It would be like using a term, of, um, a mutual fund. So it's a structure within which um, investors can do all different things. Like a mutual fund, you might say some people are value investors. Some people invest in bonds. Some people invest in stocks. People do all different things within a structure called a hedge fund. So it's a particular structure that allows people to do all different things. Basically, though, it allows you to invest without um, um, much in the way of uh, restrictions. Traditional ways, I can sell short as well as go long. If something's going to go, if I think something will go down, I can sell short. I can go into any market. I can go into stocks or bonds or commodities or gold or anywhere that I want to go, within my agreement with my client. Um, so I give me the freedom to approach the world to look at whatever's good or whatever's bad. And so it's a, it's a vehicle that allows me the freedom to invest in the best way that I know how. It was nothing to do with vision and it, 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 it's, and I think it was probably very much like Steve Jobs. In this, we had parallel lives in a sense because we were the, we were contemporaries, right? And you want and I watch them and I. And, and, so I would do, for me, I, I guess I was describing. So I love to trade markets. I worked, um, you know, at a Wall Street firm, two Wall Street firms, in about for about two years. I got out of school in '73, um, and I um, had problems fitting into the organization. Meaning, um, um, you know, I literally. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I literally, you know, got in a fist fight with my boss because on New Year's Eve we were drunk together and you know it's it was that kind of it was a, it was not an organ I was not a well-behaved um, employee and and it you know working within an organization was not the right thing for me. And I was always loved being independent. And at the time, clients of Shearson, it was then Shearson at the time, um, uh, had great relationships. They loved it. They loved working with me. And so they were going to pay me. And so I could then start my business. I didn't view it as starting a business. I just viewed it as um, I get to do what I like to do, which is to play the markets. And they'll pay me to do that. And then I did that. And then, of course, what happens over time is um, you need things. So I, I need people to work with. And besides, I love playing the game with people. And so I brought in other people, but people would do things. And, and so, um, uh, you know, and I get computers and I get other things over a period of time and it grows and it became a company, but I never viewed it as a company. I really viewed it more like I'm doing this thing and these are the things that I needed, those people in that group, and then I just kept doing it and and the things I needed became the company. I was in that apartment for um, a couple of years. Then I moved to um, Brownstone, which uh, Brownstone is a townhouse because I needed more space. I lived on the top two floors and worked on the bottom two floors. And I did that and had you know my, my family, I'm, uh, two children. And um, then we moved out uh, in, to Wilton, Connecticut, um, because I got tired of the city and I wanted to raise my kids in the uh, outside. And uh, so then we rented a house, and so on. Now we have uh, 1,500 employees. When I graduated from uh, Harvard Business School, I was trading commodities. And this was in 1973. This was when um, uh, there was the oil shock, and there was a need for commodities all around the world. And I had a bunch of pals who were in different parts of the world, and we decided to put together an association. We called it um, that would bridge the waters. At which what it meant was that we were. Uh, I would we'd find commodities that were located in one place and, the, and sold soybean oil from the United States to Iran in that kind of association. And this was one of those things that we did, kind of um, part time. Uh, But it it actually didn't end up being, I think we did probably two transactions. It was more of an idea than a reality. Um, And I had the name. So, in other words, I had formed the company, incorporated it, and I had the structure. And so then when I left Cheerson, there it was. I love Global Macro because uh, I... You know, it's everywhere in the world, and it's trying to understand how all the parts of the world operate. I, lo- I love it because it's 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 very, very practical. I, I like the fact that um, people are not making subjective evaluations for how good I'm doing, that I can measure myself down to the, you know, two decimal points, right? What's my performance? It's objectively evaluated. I like the fact that I can go long or short so that there's no such thing as, um, good times or bad times. And most people have an industry or a, a profession and they have cycles to them, you know. In m- my case, I don't have any cycles. It's I have no excuses, just it's all on me. I can make bad mistakes. And that's, my, that's that reality. I like that. So it's those elements. Notwithstand it, we anticipated it and profited by it. So in 2006 and seven, we could see that it was coming because it's another one of those. And it was an interesting, it was a very interesting time because uh, I, I won't name the policymakers, but the leading policymakers go to Washington and have conversations with them. And, um, and, and, and it seemed very, very likely that that was going to happen and as it was happening, there was a lack of understanding of it. And the reason that there was a reluctance to a, em, embrace this is first of all, it was controversial. So it seemed improbable because it never happened before in their lifetimes, right? And then there was a certain amount of conventional wisdom that they, and there was not enough discussion. There was quality discussion. Why might something that seemed so improbable be true, right? And then the willingness, I think, to think independently just on the basis of that merit. Um, and yet it was just another one of those. And if you understand the cause-effect linkages, it had to occur. So uh, we knew, now you don't know anything. We, it seemed highly likely And we then were positioned so that our clients uh, did well in 2008, when most people uh, did terribly. And yet there was no excuses to do terribly, really. And there was no excuses for letting that happen, other than they didn't experience it before. Now, let me say that that always happens. It's okay. We all make those mistakes. But the lesson to be learned from that is that um, you could be wrong and how, and that you and that you need to understand how the machine works and you need to look at those probabilities and that these things have happened for so for a very very long time even after the 2008 the understanding of deleveraging was not even calling it a deleveraging was very controversial and then understanding the mechanics of deleveraging still people were not paying as much attention to how does the machine work? How does the economic machine work? They were thinking their own opinion about what's going to come next. So let's take the issue of um of, of deficits of uh, 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 of government debt. okay, of austerity, of printing of money. These are still very controversial subjects. Most of the people who have opinions about those subjects. Are not actually studying how the machine works, going back in history and saying what are those cause-effect relationships? But they have opinions. Now that's we should instead be having a conversation on, just like biology or any physiology. You know, um, what is the cause-effect relationship? Let's agree. Let's put our that model through time. Um, I, I, I've written uh, my views on how the economic machine works uh, and I, I, I think it's um, uh, I think I put I created a website I'm not sure of the website I think it's called um, how the how the economic org or something. but in other words to just put out what do I think the machine looks like we should be talking about that. And then move on to the question of what we should do, right? But we're but yet. There's not enough of that. There's not going to the higher level and saying, "How does that machine work?" Uh, the personal experience, the personal evolution. You know, uh, I think it's that, that that it's that process of. You know. Uh, would, would you would Einstein have said, let's say that uh, I don't know whatever he, he receives a Nobel Prize or something and, and, and would he say that was his reward? He wouldn't say that was his reward uh, or the equivalent. It's the experience of uh, the, the, the discovery, the you know, the excitement, and then evolving. So you evolve to more and more levels of difficulty. It's, you know, like learning how to ski, I guess, you know, you ski at one level and then all of a sudden it's you you keep, you know, I've skied for 50 years, 15 hours a day or 14 hours a day, I got better at skiing. And so what's the kick? The kick is then to ski where you, you know, to keep yourself still at the edge. And to, to do that, that's the kick, the evolution. Everybody has a responsibility, um, the right and responsibility to make sense of things. In other words, it's got to make sense to you. And if something doesn't make sense to you, you should bring it up. You shouldn't talk behind somebody's back or, or, or gossip. And you know, too, too many people talk about the um, other people, what they're doing wrong, except they don't talk to those people about what they're doing wrong. So they don't know whether they're actually doing them wrong or not. They haven't heard the other side. And they're not being productive. I, I, so that's terrible. I, and also the organizations for me that, in which arbitrary decisions are made are terrible. Um, you know, a boss, two bosses will get together and I'll have a conversation of what a particular person is like. And, and then they'll call the person into the room and then they'll say, "Ah, oh, Harry. And then they'll give him spin. Spin is terrible. It it undermines trust, and 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 so we have a policy of um, uh, taping everything and letting everybody watch it and look at it, and then having thoughtful conversations about that. And um, there's, uh, if you're coming into the company, you go there because you believe that uh, understanding what is true, and that radical transparency to understand what's true and have thoughtful conversation about it including harsh realities is healthy and so it's the embracing of reality what is the reality including what mistakes and and what weaknesses so that i can learn from those mistakes or learn how to deal with those weaknesses in order to be successful so yes that's embedded that's that's those are the ground rules um you know the ground rules. that's how to have an idea meritocracy in other words, if you want to have a real idea meritocracy, that's not, doesn't have any barriers to it. We'll go wherever truth leads us. Um, that's what we what's what we do, and that's very powerful. That's, that's where the success comes from. We've had radical success, um, and that's where it's come from. Because it also allows independent thinking, right? I need independent thinking because if you're going to make a position in the markets, it has to be, uh, it can't be with the consensus, and you don't know if you're going to be right or wrong. So you have to test it. It's very powerful. And it's also, it's so silly not to do that because of these ego barriers. Why wouldn't you have those conversations? It's not logical not to. Unfortunately, we have, most people and there have not been raised with the notion that knowing what your weaknesses are is pleasurable. Also, the issue of um, uh, pain is associated with bad and pleasure is associated with good, and that's not true. That... Most, uh, all growth, you can't get stronger physically or mentally unless you're having pain because you're stretching yourself. You're going into a a new level. So pain is good if you're exercising, right? Let, let Go exercise at the gym. It starts off painful. But as you start to get going with it and you start to see the benefits of it, and you start to change your actually your brain physiology in terms of what actually determines whether it's painful or not, it becomes pleasurable. So a behavior modification usually takes place over about 18 months of doing something. And so you start to get into an environment where it's pleasurable. And in our case, uh, we call it getting to the other side. People come in and they're originally, they look at this and they say, oh, I made a mistake, I feel pain about that. Or I'm identifying some weakness and I feel pain about that. And then after doing it enough and seeing the feedback, then they begin to realize that it's producing benefits to them. And they begin to like it. And they begin to worry about being in an environment that they won't have that. That if they go into a normal environment, they're going to have dishonesty. They're going to have people seeing the same things, thinking the same things about them, but not telling them. They won't have an opportunity to have a discussion. They won't know whether it's truthful or not that they're operating. So it'll all be under the covers. And so they're fearful that they won't actually know either what their mistakes are or that people will be making judgments without being able to have a quality conversation. So that's the choice. Which environment would you rather be in? You you have to decide for yourself. um, Which environment would you rather be in? That people are that you know that there's going to be conversations about what people think about you and an honest exploration of whether that's true or not you can avoid all that nineteen sixty eight The Beatles went to India uh to learn how to meditate and 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 then um I heard quite a bit about it and was in the media It was interesting and then I tried. Um, I, I learned how to meditate um, and it was um, it was definitely life-changing I would say that um, probably more than anything it had a bigger effect on my life than practically anything um, because of, of how it works and the way it works is it's it it's it's basically open-mindedness so what happens is Normally, uh, you can't control your brain. If you, if you were to sit down and uh, say, I'm not going to think, uh, it will be filled with stuff and it'll jump all over and you can't control it. Um, so what happens is this is an exercise that creates open-mindedness because um, it, it, there's a, a, a word that doesn't make sense which is called a mantra. So it's a sound that you repeat. And so while your brain is on, wanting to... Uh, jump all over the place by repeating this sound um, mentally. Um, it takes your attention away from those thoughts and then by when you continue to repeat it, it goes away and so there's nothing and so you go into nothingness. okay Now when you go into that nothingness, um, first of all you've you've learned the ability to control your brain so that you can go there. You can put things away. You can approach them in a certain way. Um, when you go into that that open-mindedness, um, you're going into your subconscious. So you're not a state of conscious. So I'm not aware, but I'm not asleep. Um, asleep is, you know, you hear a sound, you won't wake up. This is, if I hear the slightest sound, I'm, you know, I, attuned to it. So it's a state of um, subconsciousness. And and, um, there are different parts of our brain that have a very big influence on us. The amygdala is the part of the brain that has the fight or flight that produces anxiety. Um, The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain, which we call for executive functioning, where it's the part that's reflective. It's the part that um, we, we are calm and we say do we want to do that do we not want to do that we put things in perspective those two parts of the brain are fight for with each other in other words the passion i'm going to do that because it's exciting but it may be harmful the other part of the brain says you don't want to do that and so that whole emotional fight or flight part of the brain during meditation um through brain imaging they see that that calms down and the prefrontal cortex lights up. So um, that open-mindedness creates um, where creativity comes from because creativity is not coming from the working the brain in the I will work hard and think about it and that I will muscle it through. It comes from this relaxation. It's just like it's an opening up and, you know, take a hot shower and don't be thinking of something and some great idea comes through and you grab the great idea. So meditation is very much um, like that. It opens it opens the mind, creates an openness, a freedom. It's uh, in which that I don't know whether we would say intuition or those that creativity just kind of comes through, and it creates an equanimity that, in other words, you could step back and you can um, put things in perspective. It doesn't lessen your emotions; the emotions are the same, but you can step back and say, "I'm not going to be controlled by that emotion." or let me put things. And I think it then helps to see things at a higher level. It's what I do. I love being creative. I love, right, I go there and I encounter. We, it, uh, The markets is just a medium. It's just my instrument, right? It's a vehicle. So in many ways uh, I've invented many different investment concepts that had never been invented before because they just made sense, right? So um, it's not just the making the money in the game as it's structured, it's inventing how the game should be played. That's fun. That's interesting. It's just a natural extension of that. So that's my instrument. The markets are my instrument. Somebody else might have, medicine might be somebody else's instrument, you know, computer technology is somebody else's medium. It happens the same same way in all of these cases. It's the interaction between that happening, at, and then then the working yourself back to reality. So Jobs, Einstein, did the same thing, right? It's the same process when we're talking about Shaper. It's the same process because you're going from the one side of your brain. You go from the from right brain to left brain. You're navigating from concept to, um, you know, imagination to actualization. brings you from big picture to small, down to detail, with reality, embracing that reality. So you have that imagination, but then you go back to the data, and the, and, and does it make sense? And do they two they connect? So it's a back and forth exercise, right? That's how it works. They all have. Uh, a, a passion, a, a, a determination, so you were, you were hitting on it, mm-hmm. that they will drag themselves through um, anything, basically, because they, they just have a need to do that. Um, they learn by making mistakes. They, 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 mistakes are part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a love for ambiguity, not a fear of ambiguity, right? In other words, some people love to go into the unknown. Some people hate the unknown, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, and and it's that constant process that they're, that they're pursuing that act of, they can go from the, um, very, um, conceptual to the very granular, right? So that they will be very granular and then come back to the conceptual and they operate in that way back and forth. What's interesting about your, your website is that it's the closest to, being able to see these things. In other words, okay, so what do they value? You could probably organize it. If you you say, okay, so now what did they value most? I'll bet you that they valued most the things that we're talking about, right? The things of, um, in other words, reality, looking at reality, appreciate the the beauty of reality, the understanding of reality, A passionate desire to understand how it works, right? The determination, then the shaping, the the desire to affect it. Okay, so if you categorized, went through the interviews, tagged them, you probably could say, okay, what did they value, and then how did they go about it, right? What was necessary, for example, people are running in a group of people. You could distinguish between them. People who are running a group of people like Steve Jobs is running a group of people. Some people can do it in a lab and not run a group of people. Einstein did not have to run a group of people, okay? So he would do it his way. But then if you're, you can categorize them. Let's say General Powell. If you take General Powell, he had to run a group of people. Okay, now how did he run a group of people? The people who ran a group of people would not let people stand in the way of their goals, so they were a certain way with people. They were they would tough. They would cut through people, meaning recognize people's strengths and weaknesses and deal with those strengths and weaknesses. So unlike a lot of people who would who may be worried about um, I don't know offending people, they wouldn't. They won't stand let offending people or cutting through it stand in the way of getting to the goal. So Steve Jobs is a great example of that, right? In other words, okay, if you want to we're talking about what are the elements that are required to achieve a goal. You'd like to have Steve just describe uh, what was required. Okay, if you're running a lot of people and and you have to accomplish something, uh, you have to cut through the people to get to the goal. That doesn't mean, now that's not cruel, so he wouldn't view it probably, I can't speak for him, but I wouldn't view that as cruel. I would view that as helpful. But I think that these are the important the things that, that your website will will do, I'm sure, is to extract that. The interesting thing about it is to depersonalize it to some extent. While personalizing it is interesting um, to the extent that you can take themes out of it, right, extract the themes. Within that website, you have an ability to understand um, what works. And uh, so when I look at uh, these tests that we give, this is very interesting. Uh, if we give the tests, you see that the different types of people in the tests have a personality it just go, it follows uh, certain patterns that are different from everyone else. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a thrill because I can go anywhere in the world. I can, in other words, anything. And I just have to bet on how reality will transpire, so I have to know how the machine works. It's just my machine, right? So just like if you're listening to one of the great things that I was enjoying about the people that I was with yesterday, as some of the people, I, I had conversations with two Nobel Prize winners in physics, and then I'm, I'm dealing with also that brain physiology. I had conversations with these people, and it's unbelievable, Right? Because it's all connected and it's, and we just have our mediums. But what the interest is is above the medium. Like uh, it's a broader base. It's not just narrow. So Einstein uh, was a musician and he loved philosophy, he loved art. Because beauty—it's loving how reality works, right? It's just a just a different way of plugging into it. And nature is very big for me, um, because I think uh, uh, so. Man is just one of thirty million species. One of the so the thirty million approaches. Okay, man is preoccupied with man. Most of the world doesn't have people on it. We just, you get in a plane, we're, we're crowded in a, a particular location, you go up in the air and you fly down, land someplace else where there are people. Most of the world isn't. So it's like man is in uh, hills. It's like being in an ant in an anthill, right? So if you want to look, the laws of the universe apply to everything. So if you really want to understand in that broader sense, you're attracted to, to it all right so to speak to physicists who are talking about the universe and to listen to how that works and at the same time uh, evolution like man is a relatively new species only two hundred thousand years old it's just um... I don't know it's all those laws of the universe are for the same for our for all of us, I have mixed feelings of the American dream i I'll, I'll tell you what I mean what I, what I love about the American dream uh, uh, that this is a country of uh, I think it's defined mostly as a country of immigrants, of people who've come with all different points of view and all different perspectives, and that they had to get along, that they had to uh, there had to be an acceptance at least in many cases, an appreciation for all of those different points of view. And to create, um, um, it was a land of opportunity. It should be an opportunity. And that is fantastic, a meritocracy to be all you can be. And that is the American dream. And And I love that element. And at the same time, I don't want to stamp it as American. It is what is uniquely American, I think but it, but it can be in various ways anywhere and wherever it is it's good we're getting, now we're in a global world and it's very important in that global world that we emphasize uh most importantly good ways of being not overdo the americanism part relative to the what is the good way of being and then understand also other good ways of being. Those dimensions to me are absolutely I love. And then we also can bring in elements of, let's not be so emphasizing the American part of it, that we also say it's got to be, have an American stamp on it to be good, that we can't then also say, what are all the different other ways of being in the world that we also can learn from? What is in common with the Chinese dream and the American dream, Do you know what uh, – so then they become some of the universal rules. So Confucian, the Confucian notions of uh, certain um, saving, um, it looks like um, a Horatio Alger. In many ways, the Confucian values are similar to the Protestant work ethic. Okay? Okay. So how do, what are you trying to achieve? So what is, when we say the Chinese dream, if you go beneath the surface, just like I've said, there are elements of the American dream. It's the meritocracy. It's all of that. When you deal in China, in many cases, there's common, what they want is in many cases what we want. They want their families to be well-educated. They want to progress. They want similar things. And then they, um, and then there may be differences too. And how do they go about that? Basically, for the most part, most people want similar things, not identical. I mean, you you could break the world, I think, into I would say different sort of categories uh, to make a big big difference. Rather than put na- names, China, we are more similar to China in many ways than we China and us. In that, there's a desire to in the Americas, in, in the United States or in China, there's a desire to accomplish. Well, or, or or to change the world, or to evolve and to raise your living standards and all that. In a large part of the world, there's a desire also to um, um, operate in harmony with life, to savor life. So if you were to go um, to a... Um, Palestinian, let's say, and uh, and an Israeli, they might have differences in what they think is important. There might be very fundamental differences. One might think um, accomplishing something is very important. Another one might say, no, it's the relationships of sitting down and having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and the quality of that experience. So different people are going after different things. Some people are going after uh, spiritualism. May be totally different. Spiritualism. Um, I mean, I think in the West we generally don't even understand very well what spiritualism is because we associate it with the judo Christian, um, Judeo Christian notion of religion, but spiritualism is something very different than that. Um, And so, but you'll have groups of people who will go after spiritualism, and then other groups of people who will go after accomplishment. And so in our, it's the difference between um, the cities, uh, New York, Boston, um, Washington, um, L.A., San Francisco, they're going after different things than they are in other parts of the country where it's the savoring. So is you, are you trying to savor? What, what, so when we look at those things, to stamp them American, what is Spanish? It's an oversimplification of certain values, I think. I think for everybody, In order to be successful, there are five steps that you go through, essentially. That everybody has their goals. What is their goal and the passion? So you have goals. And then what happens is you're going after your goals, and you encounter your problems. Okay. So, encountering problems. And then the big difference between people is how they approach those problems. People who get bummed out by the problems... um, don't learn from them. Who learns from them? So those who uh, recognize that problems are exciting, that they get into those problems or mistakes, mistakes are learning experience, the pain that comes from that mistake. Every time you have pain, it's an indication that something's at odds. And so the people who have the pain Are the people then who will go into that realize that if they solve that pain, solve that problem, understand what that is representative of, not just the one problem, but that problem is a certain type of problem that will happen over and over and over again in your life. And if you can solve, how do I deal with that kind of problem? And so, diagnose the third thing that everybody needs to do is if they have problems on the way to their goals, that they diagnose those problems and they get to the root cause, the real root cause. The real root cause is often, is typically what people are like. Can you go to what you're like? Can you go to your mistakes? Can you go to your weaknesses? Right? Can you go to other people's mistakes and weaknesses? Some people, because of an ego barrier, can't do that. And so, if they don't recognize their own mistakes, their own weaknesses, uh, or others' mistakes and weaknesses, what the root cause be, being what they're like because of ego barriers, if they can't go there, they're going to repeat those mistakes. They're going to have them over and over again. So, it's the process essentially of saying at that stage, what am I like? Everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. The weaknesses are the other side of the strengths. So, let's say if you're uh, you know, a right brain, creative person, you may not be reliable. Because just the way you think necessitates you to think a certain way. That means you can't think in another way. That means you're going to keep bumping into that thing that's standing in your way. But unless you can embrace, I'm not reliable, you right, and deal with it, you won't get around it. It's still going to continue to be a barrier, right? So the diagnosis to the root cause is is, is important. So then, Um, If you diagnose it, then you have to design what are you going to do about it that works. So um, let's say you are uh, very creative but not reliable. Okay, you have to find a means of, first of all, embracing that and then saying, um, if I'm not reliable, what do I do? Do I work with a reliable person? Do I learn reliability? Do I have some compensating mechanism? because I can't let that lack of reliability stand in the way of my goal. As long as I keep doing that, I'm going to keep running into problems. It's the mixture of the elements that matter, right? If you have a tremendous tenacity, but you're you're studying, you're learning, you're trying to memorize and remember everything that you're being taught and you're really trying hard, you could have great tenacity. You need the making sense of something. You need to embrace reality. You need these other dimensions, right? So the I think the things that uh, we started to talk about just before, the the things that um, these people uh, have a need for, is is first they need to most fundamentally make sense of things, which is a very different kind of learning process. It's a very internalized learning process. It's not a memory-based process. So none of these people, unlike the population a whole, none of these people have a desire to follow instructions. For most people, you, you you go to school, they tell you what class to go to, um, they uh, what classes to take. This goes all the way through university. They, they do this, do this, do this, and then you go into the class and they say, learn this, and this is the information. And it's largely a memory-based, instructional-based process. This is not what these people do, right? This is not uh, so the path what they what they have in it is a strong strong desire to understand and make sense of reality how does reality work okay and then so they're all uh, very independent thinking um and, and and rebellious okay they don't mind you know saying screw you I am this is what makes sense and I've got to go down that path right they're comfortable with ambiguity they love ambiguity some people don't like the ambiguity. Most people, they say, oh, I'm nervous about ambiguity. They love to go within the space of what's ambiguous because that's where the discovery is, right? They love making mistakes, the process. They understand that making mistakes, you know, loosen up. It's like, you know, going to ski or something. You can't learn how to ski unless you're falling. So they don't mind the falling. They're not embarrassed about making mistakes, they're not worried also about the approval of others, right? So many people are constantly saying, oh, well, uh, well the, risk, the whole different definition of risk. What's risky? They're not worried about what people think of them, right? Is that risk uh, or, or failure? They, the the ter- term of failure is a t- totally different thing. The, the failure is a part of the learning process, right? What's the risk of failure? What, you'll be embarrassed or risk of failure? How do you distinguish failure from learning? Uh, in your whole life, you know, failure implies that it stopped, that the game stops, right? If it's part of a, you're failing, and then you learn, then that learning is part of the moving forward, right? So that is what the process is like. Fail, learn, move forward, and constantly do that because you're cutting edge. You're going where people haven't been before in inventiveness. That's exciting, to those people. So that's a different kind of approach to life, right? It's a different way of being. People are so attached to being right, and yet the tragedy is, it could be so easily to find out how you're wrong. If you just said to yourself, I don't, um, I'm not sure that I'm right, and let me go find people who have alternative point of views, and let me have quality conversations, not to pay attention even to their conclusions, but to the thought process. So thoughtful discussion, worrying about being wrong, but not to the sense of being paralyzed or uh, moving forward, but in the sense of trying to create discovery, uh, uh, to have um, an exchange To go after the person who has the most different point of view, who is the most thoughtful, and then have a conversation to see their point of view, whether a person could be both open-minded and assertive at the same time, that that creates a discovery process, it creates a fabulous learning, and that process itself reduces the probability of being wrong and produces a great deal of learning. People are so hung up on being right, starting their discussion and being deriving some sort of satisfaction, if at the end of the discussion, they were where they began the discussion. So that doesn't make any sense because there's not going to be any learning. So ego plays an important role in that, right? That's that, oh, the people who feel like they're, I'm good, I've got it won't learn if you've got it you won't learn right so so you have to get rid of this ego barrier i've got it thing every human being has weaknesses and and it as i say it's the opposite side of thinking it's the in other words if you're one if you have a brain that works one way and you're doing certain things that allow you to do things That way that you're excelling, it means that your brain is working in a manner that has its pluses that'll cause its minuses. So the creative person who's not reliable or the reliable person who's not creative. But if they don't embrace that, they're going to continue to encounter that. Ego barrier is the worst thing. And if we were raised differently, just imagine in the schools all along that people will always say, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has weaknesses. The key is really to understand what your mistakes and weaknesses are so that you can learn from them, right? I think punishment is 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 a terrible concept. Punishment means that you made a mistake and you're being punished I think instead of punishment, every time somebody makes a mistake, you, you should say the only thing that you need to do um, to get out of your punishment is first think, what kind of mistake was that? So if I'm in a situation that's like that again, um, how would I do deal with it differently not to make that mistake? So that learning should come from the mistake, not punishment, because you're teaching people Not to make mistakes, where's where the learning comes from, not the appreciation that if you keep doing this over and over again, you're going to keep encountering the same outcomes.